Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1 to verse 9. And I have to say that Daniel chapter 6 probably contains one of the very best known stories in the Bible, doesn't it? It's very different from chapter 5. We were looking, finishing with chapter 5 last week. Chapter 5 is full of darkness and full of foreboding, but chapter 6 is different. It's pointing us to Christ. It's full of Christian faithfulness and prayer and redemption and foreshadowing of Calvary and protection of God for his saints. And of course, the events of chapter 6 are in thousands of children's books. And it's been the subject of millions of children's talks in churches and meetings, Sunday school classes, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Well, we're going to look at it slightly differently. This morning, we're going to do some background work we're going to see why Daniel ended up in the lion's den in the first place. And then next week, God willing, we're going to look at the interaction that occurred between Darius the king and Daniel the prophet. Let's start with Darius' administration in verse 1 to verse 3. And tells us here that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a hundred and twenty princes, or satraps, if you like. Darius, of course, has a greatly extended empire, hasn't he? He had already conquered Babylon, as we saw last week. Babylon has fallen. The Babylonian empire has fallen. And the Persians, the the great nation of Medo-Persia, is in charge. And their empire now stretches from Iran in the east, modern Iran, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. It's a vast empire. And that empire, through war, has been destroyed and laid waste. But its new rulers wanted to prosper. There's not much point in conquering a nation if you're not going to get anything out of it and extend your personal wealth. So Darius begins to establish a civil service to rule the land. But the civil service got reorganized. 120 administrative governors, one over each region of the empire, answerable to a triumvirate of presidents, three overlords who would act as managers, as regional governors, as go-betweens. The king wouldn't want to be bothered talking to 120 people at the same time. Who wants to deal with 120 civil servants? So he would deal with these three men, and they would deal with the 120 administrators. And there needs to be a chairman, doesn't there? So verse 3 It tells us this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole 
realm. There needs to be someone in charge, somebody to call the meetings, someone to keep order, and that man is Daniel. Now he's now in his very late old age. He's been a senior civil servant in the Babylonian Empire, but he has a seriously good reputation. There's an excellent spirit in him. He's promoted because of his character. Darius contemplated making him the chief minister. Now, that brings us to the plot. Because when someone gets preferment over his fellows, there's very often a case of jealousy, isn't there? So look at verse 4. Then the presidents and princes, it's the whole cabal of them, sought to find occasion against Daniel. They wanted to find something to accuse him of concerning the kingdom. So what they're looking for here is some misjudgment, something where he's made a mistake, perhaps a financial error in the books, maybe a a, a judgment that he's made wrong. The presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, concerning the administrative affairs of Darius's kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. So we have a bit of party politics going on here. I've been talking to Paul Somerville through the week of Sasra. You'll hear something of that chat later. But I've been talking to him and I asked him a question, can a Christian be a soldier? As I asked him the question, I was thinking, can a Christian be a politician? Especially when it comes to party politics. It's difficult enough for a Christian to maintain his or her testimony of profession like politics were dissembling and lying and political manoeuvres of the current common currency. And yet politics without a Christian influence would be much worse, would it not? You know that as Christians, we should be praying for Christians in politics. But you know, there's politics goes on in more than parliaments and assemblies and political parties. Political manoeuvring is not confined to those. These satraps were jostling for position in a civil service, in an administration. They weren't elected, they were appointed. They wanted to gain the favour of the king. They wanted to get one over on someone else so they could get promotion. How often have we found that in companies, in workplaces? where you get political manoeuvring going on, where you get people who want to advance their career by tramping over someone else. Maybe in your workplace you've seen it. Someone who has stuck the knife, metaphorically speaking, into the back of somebody else just so that they'd get a better job or or get a pay raise or, or get a bit of praise from the boss. You see it in work. Ruthless promotion-driven men and women walking over other people to get where they want to be. And you see it in churches. Sometimes church politics is the dirtiest politics of all. That's the only reason verse 4 is here. 
There's politics going on. And look at it. It's full of skullduggery, isn't it? The presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They're actually going around looking for faults in people. It's all about power and position and serious unethical plotting. And it led to underhandedness. Look at verse 5. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except that we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Here's their reasoning. There's only one weak area in Daniel's character. There's only one part of his character that could ever bring him into conflict with the king, and that's his religion, his unshakable faith in Jehovah God. And they agreed that the king would never find fault in Daniel's work, in his loyalty, in his finances, in his fairness. So they create a situation where he has to choose between serving his God and serving the king. I think that's the position that Christians are in today. I think there are many Christian believers today who are being placed into a position where they're being forced in their work perhaps where they're being forced to accept the worldly philosophies of this age or lose their job forced to do what the government says or lose their job or be deplatformed or be censored or be told that you can't post on Twitter anymore if you're going to say, for example, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. A woman, by the way, is an adult human female. If you were to say that in some social media platforms, you would be put off. You're going to have to choose Daniel. And either way, Daniel's going to be the loser. For if he chooses to simply put his faith in God first and obey him, he's a dead man. He's going to the den of lions. And the problem for these people is solved. This man is out of the way. And if he chooses to disobey God and obey the king, then his whole integrity is ruined. And his work ethic and his honesty, which is based on his faith and his obedience to God, is all destroyed. Either way, Daniel is in a no-win situation. Being a Christian, following Jesus makes you different from everyone else. At some stage, that difference is going to bring you into conflict with this world. They're going to create an ethical dilemma for Daniel that he can't wriggle out of. He's going to either die or have his name dragged through the mud and destroyed. And it involves disinformation. Look at verse 6. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king 
and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever all the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counsellors and the captains. Isn't that some list of dignitaries? Right there. The presidents, the governors, the princes, the counsellors, even the army captains. They have all got together. They have consulted together. They've had some kind of a meeting. And they have decided that they want to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree. All of them. And they're telling lies. All these civil servants in the court of Darius were lying. They were claiming unanimity. They were saying that everyone in authority wants this to happen. Everyone of influence has agreed on this, except that they weren't, because we know that Daniel wasn't included, and the king isn't being told the facts. Go down to the bottom of verse 7. Here's the decree, a firm decree, that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now be careful about this. They're not asking the king to make religion illegal. That's not what they're saying. They're saying everyone can worship their god. Whatever God you worship, any God you want, even the Lord God, Jehovah, the one true God, if Daniel insists on that. But all that you have to do is to comply with this new law. You don't pray directly to your God. You pray to your God through the king. Do you see that? Look, here it is. Whoever, whosoever shall ask a petition of any God or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king. The king becomes a kind of an intermediary between all these different gods, even the true God. And yet, First Timothy 2 and verse 5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Here's the decree laid out. Anybody prays, you've got to pray through Darius. There's an interesting feature of this legislation too. Do you notice that in the request that they make to Darius? It's a firm decree. And in verse 8, it tells us, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. That's an interesting feature, isn't it? Once the king had signed this royal decree, this executive order in modern terms, there is no going back. It can't be revoked. It has to expire naturally. So once signed, this decree, this 
decision of the kings would extend for 30 days. It could never be rescinded. There's no way out of it. It's a death sentence for anybody who breaks this new law. And there's no appeal and there's no reprieve. It's a clever move on these men, on their part. And you can see the appeal of this to the king, to Darius. For him it was a great idea. Darius is the new king. Darius has been the one who conquered the city of Babylon and put evil Belshazzar Belshazzar to death. He now needs to come to the attention of all his people. They need to learn who he is. They need to respect his position. And now they're going to all be united. Instead of praying to all these other gods, they'll be praying to him. It'll be a wonderful united factor. I can just see these politicians standing up in the court of Darius and say, you know, it's for your own good. It's for the good of the kingdom. It's for the good of the children. It's for the good of the nation. We'll all be brought together as one. What a great pragmatic plan. Just what's needed for a new king, a new kingdom. And the king sitting there on his throne is flattered. Verse 9. Wherefore King Darius signed the writing and the decree. You'd wonder how they got away with this, wouldn't you? Quite simply, they appealed to the king's ego. They flattered him with the possibility that he was some kind of a little god. It wasn't an unusual idea. The Roman emperors believed it. They expected you to worship Caesar on the grounds that Caesar embodied a divine spirit to all intents and purposes, that they were some kind of mini-god, and they didn't care if you believed in some other god or a pantheon of gods, just so long as you offered a sacrifice to Caesar. He had a high opinion of himself, and so has King Darius. The idea of the whole world bowing to him, it's all about me. And they stoke his ego. And he signs the decree. Any man who worships any god must bow to King Darius. And there's conflict for Christians. What do we do now? Do we obey the government and do what they say? Or do we do what God tells us in his word? What will Daniel do? Well, you know the story. But our background work at least is done. The king has signed the new decree into law. Anyone who worships or prays to any god has to be praying to Darius first. And anyone who breaks the law will face a painful and a gruesome death. 
and the outward effects of Daniel's faith in God. His honesty and fairness and integrity have brought him great success in the kingdom up to this point. But right now, if he bows in prayer to the Lord God Almighty who created this world, he will die. The question is, what would we do? God willing, next week, we'll see that interaction between Daniel and King Darius. We'll see how God intervened to protect him in his time of trial. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.